Psalms chapter 16. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me, or you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And turn over to Psalms 23. Um, Psalms 23, I will not be reading out of the ESV. It'll be in the King James. Just because it only sounds right to me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God bless the reading of his word. Turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. You want to put a finger in there and also open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be in several places throughout the day, but those will be our... Uh, major places where we'll walk through those passages more detailedly. Let's pray before we begin. We begin. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, to step back and consider what we believe. To step back and consider where our trust is in. Lord, to step back and just think through uh, just the glories of who you are and the glories of what you have done for us. God, I pray during this time that we would be open-minded, that we would think well, that we would hear well. Um, and Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, that they would come and receive, they would, they would receive you today. In your name, amen. So if you've seen in the bulletin or if you've seen around town some of the flyers we have up, you'll, you'll know already that the message today is called The Resurrection, Faith or Fact? With a question mark. Many of us may be willing at first to say, well, of course it's faith. Right? How can we prove that the resurrection is true? We can't really prove that that happened. So, of course, it's faith. I take it by faith and I believe it by faith. And, you know, that would sound fair at first. However, don't we also want to believe truth? Isn't that our goal? I mean, nobody says, you know what, I really, really want to believe a lie. You know, I really want to know, I really want to, I really want to just trust and put my faith in and depend on something that's a lie. Show of hands, anybody who wants to believe a lie? None? See, there we go. Now we're on the same page. Here we go. All right? So we know, we, we already know, we don't want to believe a lie. So when it comes to something like the resurrection, that somebody rose from the dead, are we believing a lie? Is it just faith? Or is there more to it? <clears throat> so last week we talked a little bit about unbelief. If you were here last week, you'll remember this. We talked about a concept called falsifiability. It's a big word. What it means is that for something to be given more weight of truth, there has to be a way to prove it wrong. Okay? And that sounds weird, right? That sounds really strange. Well, if something's true, obviously there'd be no way to prove it wrong. Well, in philosophy, the, the idea is that if you can't prove it wrong, 
then it's probably made up. Right? We talked a little bit last week about, about, uh, about Mormonism, Joseph Smith finding the golden tablets. And when people said, well, let us see the golden tablets, he said, God said, I can't show them to you. Well, how can you prove him wrong? You can't prove him wrong. You can't prove him right either. You just have to take it by faith. And see, we would, see, we would hear something like that and we'd say, that's ridiculous. How could you trust something with no proof? Yet we do, sometimes we do the very same thing when we come to Scripture. Well, I believe it just because, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's true or not. I just, I just believe it because I want to. Falsifiability. Now, again, when it comes to something like the resurrection of Jesus, this is really important. When it comes to something like what we celebrate today at Easter, the resurrection, there is a way to disprove the resurrection. If you find the bones of Jesus, and you can prove without a shadow of a doubt that those bones belong to Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrection is false, and Christianity is false. So then the opposite is true. If you don't find the bones of Jesus, the evidence leads to, there's got to be some explanation for that, right? There's got to be, so this is our question we're going to ask today. If we haven't found the bones of Jesus, what's the best explanation to, uh, to, to deal with that particular data? So I have said from the pulpit uh, two different statements. I've said one, uh, and more, more positively stated, that if uh, that I, I firmly believe in the resurrection. So there you go. I'm going to give you my take on this. I firmly believe in the resurrection. So I have said from the pulpit that I, th- I think, the re- I believe the resurrection is more certain than my own existence. I think I, I am more certain that Jesus rose from the dead than I am certain that I am standing in front of you talking today. And you think that's really weird. It's true. It is really weird. That's how certain I am of the resurrection. That's how firmly I believe, how firmly I trust in the resurrection. And we'll so I'll show you some of that why that's the case today. Negatively, I would say this. If they were to find the bones of Jesus, let's just come up with an imaginary scenario. Let's say they found a bone box. It's called an ossuary. It would have been at that time. They found an ossuary that said, these are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth on the outside. And they opened up the box, and there's a note signed by every one of the apostles, right? All 11 of the apostles apart from Judas. And the, and the note says, we fooled everyone until today. Right? Ha ha. Right? We fooled everyone until today. And they were to do DNA testing, and they were to prove without a shadow of a doubt that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph. Guys, if, that, if those facts st- stared me straight in the face, I'm out. I'm not good. Christianity is false. Why would I believe something not true? Now, the sad reality is, is that for many Christians, even staring that factual evidence in the face would say, well, I still believe he rose from the dead. And as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look at later, if that's the case, <laughs> we are the worst to be pitied. If we're willing to believe in the face of that kind of evidence, we just, all we deserve is pity. That's not a righteous thing to say, I have faith, even if all the evidence points against it. So, let's ask the question, is there evidence? Is there evidence? Because if there's no evidence, what are we doing here? What, what kind of, you know, so we're going to talk a little bit later about what kind of evidence we'd be looking for. First, I want to, again, I want to explain how historical research works. Now, will you agree with me that it is impossible for us to access the past? Right? We would agree with that. Well, you can't, right? We can't go. There's no such thing as time machines. No matter what Doc Brown invented, we don't have time machines, right? There's no such thing. We can't go back to 33 AD in the middle of Jerusalem, find out where Jesus is being crucified, and say, oh, yep, there it is. Let me wait a couple of days, Sunday morning. Hey, look at that. He rose from the dead, guys. We can't do that. We don't have that kind of access to the past. So all we have is records. We have written records. We have testimony. We have all these kind of things that we use to access the past. So for the sake of historical research, there's really, in, in, in a way, and I want you to, be, to understand where I'm coming from on this, in historical research, there's no real such thing as certainty in the sense that we know without a shadow of a doubt. Because it, 
could have been made up. Right? There's poss- there, so we, what we have to come up with is, is what is most probable? Okay? What is the best explanation for the data that we have? And this will make a lot more sense later on, so hold, bear with me. Don't look at me and stone me to death just yet. Um, so we're searching then for the best explanation. Now we have another question we want to bring up. There's uh, perspectives and, and uh, I don't know, something you might hear called consensus. Perspectives and consensus. You might say, well, okay, history would say we can all agree that something actually happened if all the scholars agree on it. Right? If everybody agrees, then it probably is true. Well, not necessarily. And here's why. There's a thing called perspectives. Right? In, in, in history research, we call this horizons. Everyone has horizons that they use. So someone may have their horizon. So for me, for example, right, I am a Christian. I have that worldview. I have a biblical worldview. So I read and interpret history from my biblical worldview. It's going to shade the way I read history. There is no such thing for anybody as completely objective history. Someone who comes to the Bible and they don't believe that people can rise from the dead, are they going to believe in the resurrection? No. They're going to find some other explanation to explain what is in the text. So this person may be a great historian. They may be one of the smartest people in the world. And they may say, well, in their mind they say, you know what? It's impossible for people to rise from the dead. I've never seen that happen before. No one's ever risen from the dead as far as I know. So when the Bible says someone did rise from the dead, it must be false. Okay? They have a perspective. They have a horizon. An atheist is going to come to the scriptures. They say, God doesn't exist. Miracles can't exist. Resurrections don't happen. And that's going to color the way they read historical data. So when they see somebody say, I saw Jesus risen from the dead, they might be like, well, maybe you're just hallucinating. Right? Because hallucinations happen. We know that. But not resurrections. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to kind of look at some of this as we get toward the end here. But I want us to have, a, have an understanding of that. So, for example, the question of consensus. Let me give you an illustration here. Has anybody in here ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? Anybody ever heard of the Jesus Seminar? There was a group of scholars that started meeting in the 80s up through the early 2000s called the Jesus Seminar. What they were doing is they were searching for the historical Jesus, right? So they said the Bible is, is a Jesus of faith, not a Jesus of history, that there's stuff about Jesus that's in the Bible that's not provable by history. So therefore, we have to figure out who the historical Jesus is, the actual guy, not the guy that did these miracles. That, that's all, that, none of that happens. So the, here's the thing. The Jesus Seminar had this big group of scholars, and they were trying to say, okay, let's vote. So when they had something that Jesus said in the Gospels, they voted on how likely they think that it was that Jesus actually said that. Now, what's the problem? You may have every one of those scholars agree on something, but if you look at the panel of scholars that they brought together, most of the scholars, in fact, I think all of the scholars, were all either atheists or agnostics. How in the world is that going to be fair? Starting with a bunch of atheists and agnostic scholars, how is that, how is that supposed to be fair? How is that supposed to be balanced opinion? It can't be. Right? They're all going to come from a certain perspective. So the findings of the Jesus Seminar are going to be flawed because even, they, even though they might have consensus, they have perspectives that skew their, uh, their interpretation. So moving forward, let's, show, let's start in John chapter 12, and then we'll move forward. We're going to build a case through this on the resurrection. We've been going through the book of John, so we want to kind of start with this end of chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 44. And real briefly, we'll look at this uh, in context here. This is kind of the, this ending section here is the end of chapter 12. It kind of functions as a summary of what was going on in the rest of the chapter, the way John set this up. Jesus cries out, verse 44, and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Jesus is saying, whoever believes in me, whoever puts their trust in me, whoever puts their faith in me, is not just putting their trust in him, Jesus. They're also putting his faith in him who sent me, and for him that is the Father, God the Father. So that if they believe in God, Jesus, Jesus God the Son, they're putting, really also believing in God the Father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I've come to give salvation, so that people will not stay in their sin. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. A couple of really important things Jesus is pointing out here in what he brings out in this passage. Believing or not believing has real consequences. This is what Jesus is teaching here. If you believe in me, you are on board. You are on the same page with God. You are believing what God wants you to believe. If you trust in me, if you believe in me to be your Savior, then you are trusting what God has given you. If you don't, there's judgment. If you don't, there's judgment. There are eternal consequences to believing or not believing. Well, that's a pretty important thing then, is we're looking at the resurrection. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, there's eternal consequences to that, aren't there? We would be pitied, right, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then there are also eternal consequences. If Jesus did rise from the dead, that proves that he is the Son of God, he is the only way of salvation, that there is no other religion that holds this true. There is no other religion that speaks any truth because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So, if the so this is why the resurrection becomes so important in Christianity. Everything we believe as Christians rides on the resurrection. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, there is no hope outside of Jesus. Christianity is exclusive on having access to hope. No other religion can get you to God, apart from Christianity, if the resurrection is true. So we see here in this passage that believing or not believing has eternal consequences. And we also see that Christianity then is exclusive. So then, what are we to believe? What are we to believe? The Gospel of John will finish that we need to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, that he died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. So let's then step, take a step back then from Scripture in general, take a step back and kind of take a bird's eye view and, 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 and try to get from a historical standpoint, from a historical kind of research standpoint, how we can, what, what kind of facts would have, to, would have to present themselves for us to see reliability, for us to be able to trust what Scripture says. So are the Scriptures reliable? You, might, you may see on the History Channel questions like this all the time. Is the Bible reliable? Did the Bible lie? Is the Bible really true? Questions like that, which I'm like, why are you asking this question again? You... Obviously, you're not going to come at this, with it, as we already talked about, with perspectives. If you're coming at this as an agnostic, you're not going to come at this from the right perspective. So why do I need to listen to you in the first place? Anyway, so moving forward here, we would need to ask, what, what kind, what, if, if there's going to be an explanation, right? So we have people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What explains that belief? What are the, so then we're going to start with here. There are six major things that most historians agree upon. The majority of, again, we, as we talked about with consensus, it's always a little bit hazy there. But most historians, uh, even atheists and agnostic historians, will agree with these particular facts about the life of Jesus. They'll say, these all actually happened. First of all, we, uh, most scholars will agree that Jesus predicted his death and his subsequent glorification. Or in some cases in the scriptures that he predicted that he would rise from the dead. So Jesus, we, we're pretty sure that Jesus actually said this. He actually predicted his death and resurrection. Okay, well that's important to know. In John 12, we already saw that earlier, that he, he, as he preached to the people, he told them that the Son of Man is going to be killed and he's going to rise from the dead. But how can we be sure that Jesus actually said this? So this is kind of where it gets into how we do historical research. How can we be certain that Jesus actually predicted his death and resurrection? Well, in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, it's one particular place where Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. And when he did so, 
his disciple Peter rebuked him. Well, that seems weird, right? This guy's disciple says, oh, no, you're wrong. Now, imagine if you were in class, right? And your teacher said something, and you raised your hand. You're wrong! Right? <laughs> the teacher would be like, whoa, okay. This is a little bit, this is really awkward, right? It'd be kind of weird. And in this case, in this uh, particular generation, this time period, your teacher that you followed, you pretty much followed them unquestioningly. So for them to present Peter, one of the disciples, as rebuking his master, that'd be a pretty embarrassing fact. And imagine this. If you were to say, we, gee, we're going to make Jesus out to be more than he was. So I'm going to write this story where one of us actually, like, rebukes him. That'd be pretty weird, right? If you're going to make up a story about a guy, wouldn't you make it look like, and we just believed everything he said because he was right about everything, right? Again, because there's embarrassing facts here, it seems that it's more, more likely the case that the disciples, the ones who wrote the Gospels, especially Mark right here, uh, that, that Mark was giving real facts. He's expressing the facts as they actually were. Jesus then also uses the term Son of Man in that passage. The early Christians never refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. Only Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The early, early Christians use Christ or Lord or Son of God, but never the term Son of Man. So it's very likely that, that, uh, that this is actually Jesus saying these things, because the early Christians never called him that. It's also highly unlikely that this would be made up. It's a very unlikely thing. Like, oh yeah, he predicted that he was going to die. Why would you make that up? That's kind of a weird thing to make up. Secondly, we, if we, can, we can guess this, uh, in, uh, that he predicted his own death and resurrection from Mark 14. Uh, when Jesus is in the garden, he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now again, in, 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 in historical martyr stories, in historical martyr stories, the martyr, the one who's going to be killed, may have known that his death was coming, but he always went triumphantly. Yes, bring this death on. Bring it on. I'm going forward. Even when Stephen was martyred in the book of Acts, he went forward with it. Here we have Jesus who's about to be killed, about to be martyred. He knows it's coming. And what do we see? We see him in the garden before the Father saying, let this cup pass from me. Now, if you're trying to build a story of, we have this hero guy named Jesus. It's kind of an embarrassing detail to put in there, isn't it? It's not very heroic. So it's more likely that this is actually true events that Jesus actually did. Now, real quickly, we have a couple of things regarding his fate, a couple of facts regarding his fate that we know happened, uh, that he died by crucifixion. Now, there are some random people that will say that Jesus didn't die by crucifixion. Usually other religions, um, uh, Muslims, for instance, say Jesus didn't really die on the cross, right? So they're try they, again, they have a reason for that. They don't want to say Jesus rose from the dead because if Jesus rose from the dead, they're wrong. Okay? There's a, so they have a reason for making that claim. Um, well, from history, we have, uh, there's several historians. Um, Josephus, who was a Jew, Tacitus and Lucian, who were both, who were both Romans, and uh, Mara ben, ben uh, Serapian, who was another uh, Jew. All four of them, and, and all four of the Gospels, in addition to that, all of them all agree that Jesus was di died by crucifixion. Now, again, that's a little bit different, right? We have, we have people from different religious backgrounds all concurring that the facts are that Jesus died by crucifixion. All of these reports are also pretty early. These don't come 200, 300 years after. These are all really early reports within the first 100 years. Um, Paul, for instance, um, uh, preached a message to the city of Corinth in A.D. 51, and then he wrote about this, uh, wrote back to this church in A.D. 55 in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is within 21 years of Jesus' crucifixion. This is really early that, Je that Paul is saying Jesus died by crucifixion. It's also highly probable that it might have been earlier, that this data might be earlier. It might come from tradition that was more within those 21 years. Right within a couple of years of Jesus' death, uh, that he died by crucifixion. Again, so this is also it's also uh, could be it's very it's a credible uh, the, the way the Gospels present Jesus' crucifixion. It's very accurate given what we know about crucifixion, the brutality of crucifixion. Um, they're they're accurate. It's accurate information in the Gospels. It's also kind of embarrassing too. It's kind of an embarrassing fact. That this, this, this guy who you're saying is the, is, is the, is, uh, the son of God, 
you want to claim that he's the son of God, and then he's beaten to death and, and hung on a cross. Right? This was, this was a death for common folk. This was a death for the lowest of the low of society. And here we have Jesus being crucified. Um, uh, just to give an example of, of, the, 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 of the details of what crucifixion would include. When someone was crucified, their beatings before the crucifixion would often include beatings to the point that their bones would be exposed. Some were even reported to have their organs exposed. So their, their internal organs would be exposed from the beatings that they took. Eventually, the, death, the crucifixion was not just about being nailed to something that made you die. It was death by suffocation. The way they would hang you on the cross was such that you couldn't breathe. So the death was an agonizing and terrible, painful event. Before you're crucified, you're beaten to within an inch of your life, and then you're hung on a cross where the only thing you can do is suffocate to death. This is not likely that anybody would survive such an event. This is a very, there's also, we also believe this is true because there's a very low probability of surviving. Some suggested that maybe he fainted and then woke up in the grave because everyone thought he was dead. Right? Everyone, they, he just passed out. Well, he must be dead. Let's put him in the grave. And then Jesus wakes up and calls, oh my goodness, I passed out. Right? That's one of the explanations here. We'll actually evaluate that explanation later. Uh, another a uh, aspect of his fate, um, he appeared to the disciples. Jesus has several appearances in the Gospels. Um, first of all, we have, uh, we have uh, this, uh, quickly, let's go a couple, uh, look at a couple of, uh, of facts surrounding this. Uh, is this credible that he actually appeared to the disciples, or at least that they believed that he appeared to them? Um, we see this uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll look at in a little bit. Um, the, Paul actually re references several of these instances where, where people saw Jesus. Um, another thing, the Gospels actually point to, and we saw this in Matthew uh, this morning in the, in the service, God, the Gospels actually point to the earliest people that saw Jesus risen from the dead were women. Now again, this is a culture that was heavily man-centered, Right? So women were, were, were even lower than, like, the poorest, worst people that you can imagine. Poor, worse than shepherds, right? And shepherds were the lowest of the low. Women were even worse than that. So you say, hey, our guy, our hero, the first people he went and saw was ladies. He will be like, ha, that's really funny. That's a good joke. Oh, you're not joking? That's a really weird thing for you to say. In fact, some of the earliest scholars writing against Christianity said this whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, he's showing up to women, and they're, they're a bunch of, they're weird, right? right? Again, so again, women were looked down on in this culture. So for the Gospels to show Jesus talking to women first, it's more likely, because this would be an embarrassing fact, more likely that they're giving real accurate details. Also, the fate of the apostles shows, shows some, uh, that their appearance to the disciples makes, makes sense. Uh, all of the disciples, except for John, died, of martyr, died by the sword or in some other martyrdom kind of situation. John, the, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, is the only one who actually died by natural causes. Now, again, think of this. If these, if these 11 guys all made this story up, Right? Imagine you get you and 11 friends all made, made up a story, right? You start telling everybody a story. Some people start believing you. You go, wow, this is pretty cool, right? And then one of your friends has a gun pointed to his head. Is this true or not? And he says, oh, of course it's true. Bang. Well, the next person is going to be like, we made that story up. I don't know if I'm going to die for this one, right? You go to the second person. Is this true? What's that? Per that person is probably going to think twice before he says yes, Right? And maybe he dies. Maybe I'm sure, though, by the time you get to the end of the line, somebody's going to be like, it wasn't me. We, we made it up. It was a lie. Right? Because we're not going to die for something we made up. That's silly. Right? If I, I gave an illustration last week about a fish. If I told everybody I caught a six-foot catfish when I was a kid, right? And you're just pulling a point of gun to them, I said, are you sure you caught a six-foot catfish? They're like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I probably didn't ever catch a catfish at all, you know? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, now I don't have to shoot you. Right? I'm not going to die for a lie that I made up. Right? So, so it's very unlikely that they made up the stories about, the, about Jesus appearing to them. <coughs> Next we see the conversion of the Apostle Paul. 
This also is interesting too. Paul, if we know what we know about Paul, Paul was actually a persecutor of Christians. This is what he says about himself. I killed Christians. Then he says, but then I saw the resurrected Jesus and everything changed. And then he becomes the greatest missionary. So the conversion of Paul itself is a strange thing in and of itself. We've got to explain why that's the case. His also, Jesus' skeptical brother James also became a Christian. In John chapter 7, it says that his brothers didn't even believe in him. So James did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet, we see later on in James' life, he is pastoring the church in Jerusalem. He is one of the main leaders. What happened? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus, went, the, the resurrected Jesus showed up to his brother James. Now imagine this. Let's put this into perspective here. If I, my sister, right? I, I have a sister. Um, if my sister died, right? And she had claimed the whole time she was alive, she was saying, you know, I'm, I'm somebody. I'm, you know, I, everybody needs to believe in everything I'm saying, right? And I went, whatever. It's just my sister. She's just a weirdo. Right? And then she died, and I know she died, and I went to her funeral, and I saw her put in the ground. And then a couple days later, she showed up at my house and said, hey, what's up? I'd be like, uh, <laughs> this is kind of weird, right? It might change my mind about what she said. She must have been telling the truth because that's kind of odd. But imagine this. This is, his, this is a guy who grew up in the same house with Jesus, Right? And skeptical throughout all of Jesus' ministry. That I don't believe a thing this guy is saying. And all of a sudden, he's teaching and pastoring. Something radical had to have taken place. And Paul says it's because he saw the resurrected Jesus. And last thing we have here is there's an empty tomb. Now, only two-thirds of scholars really agree with this. So, so this is a little bit fuzzier to try to, to, try to prove historically. Uh, two-thirds of scholars will agree that there was actually an empty tomb. Even scholars that are agnostics and atheists will say, yeah, there is an empty tomb. Now, again, they're going to try to find another way to explain it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later here. Um, even scholars that are not believers agree that there was an empty tomb. So if we're going to have an explanation, to, it's got it's to account for all of these facts, that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, that, he, that the disciples believed he appeared to them, that Paul was converted, that his skeptical brother James was converted, and that there was an empty tomb. We've got to account for these facts. There's got to be some way to say that these are all true, uh, or some, some explanation has to fit all of these things. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 here real briefly. And then we'll analyze some of the, some of the claims that are made uh, to, make it, to try to describe these facts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if I can find it. I've got to bookmark these things. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's saying, what I preached to you is what I received, right? You received something, and he's, he's going to tell us this is what he also received. Look at this in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Okay, so Paul is saying, I got this from somewhere, and I'm telling you this, right? So again, we looked at Paul's ministry in Corinth was around A.D. 51, Okay? Jesus died in A.D. 33. This is A.D. 51, when, uh, when, during uh, Paul's ministry in Corinth. He's writing this letter in A.D. 55. And he's saying, I preached to you something, and I actually received that before A.D. 51. So this, this dates back even further, this information he's going to give. He says, for, um, that which I also received. And here he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And by that he means they died. <clears throat> then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. This is here, this is the earliest record that we have of the resurrection. The Gospels were written later, okay? So the Gospels were written in a time period after AD 55. That's when scholars agree and when those were written. So this right here is the earliest written evidence we have for the resurrection. And Paul even says, this actually dates back further than, than when I'm actually writing this. Uh, he said he preached this to the Corinthians in AD 51. There's good reason, given Paul's testimony and his travels, that he received this teaching about the death and resurrection from the Jerusalem apostles, the earliest Christians. Um, with his interaction with them, if he was wrong, they certainly would have corrected him. Now imagine that, right? You have access to the original people, and you're, you're, you're teaching a message. If you were getting it wrong, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, you didn't, you didn't do that right. Right, you're not doing that right. You've got you to do that differently. You've got to say that differently. That's not what we said. Right, so what Paul is saying here is, since he hasn't been corrected at this point, and he's had very much a lot of interaction with these early disciples, it's very likely that this actually represents early, the earliest Christian belief. This is what the earliest Christians actually said within years, within days of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right, so this is very likely the, the most accurate information we can possibly have from a historical standpoint. Further, he also talks about this as a fulfillment. Of, he understands Jesus' death and resurrection to be fulfillment of prophecy, right? So, um, so he, in, in Paul's belief and his understanding, Jesus dying for our sins, that's prophecy. Jesus died for our sins because the Old Testament said he would which was written hundreds of years before Jesus actually died for our sins. And then he rose from the dead, which is also written in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it actually happened. And then he talks about his different appearances. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to, uh, he appeared to the twelve. That's the disciples. Paul never uses the term the twelve, so it's very likely that this, actually this phrasing probably comes from an earlier Christian community besides him. He doesn't use that term, the twelve, in, in, his, in his works. He appeared to more, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So he's using, he's using chronological language here, right? Then this, then this, then this, then this, then finally at the very end, to me. So he believes Jesus has risen from the dead because he's, he believes he's seen it. And then he shows his own humility, uh, which is how we know, this is how one of the reasons we know Paul actually wrote this. It wasn't somebody uh, writing to pretend to be Paul. It's the, the humility that he shows. Like, I'm one untimely born. I'm a nobody. I was actually killing Christians. There's no way I deserve this, but yet here I am doing what God has asked me to do. Then he gives, uh, in verses 12 through 19, it's interesting, he actually uses the same argument for falsifiability. He actually brings up this, he basically says, I'll summarize here, uh, um, he basically says, if, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then we have no hope of our own resurrection, and everything we believe as Christians is false. And we are the worst to be pitied. Now imagine that. If I was to say, stand up here and say, you know, if, uh, if I didn't catch a six-pound six pound catfish, I'm just the stupidest person in the entire world. And you can quote me on that. And then you go and find out, well, let me go find out if he actually did catch a six-foot catfish. I well, guess you're an idiot, Justin. Right? You could prove me. You could prove it. Because I tell you right now, my dad's sitting right here. I've never caught a six-foot catfish. I've never caught an actual catfish. Right? My dad and I did lots of fishing and very little catching. Okay, so not a whole lot of catching in my experience, right? Um, it's not an indictment against my dad. It's an indictment against my fishing abilities and my probably scaring away all the fish. He's actually really good at that stuff. I'm not. Um, so Paul actually says it's possible. You can prove me wrong. And what else does he say here? He actually tells us there are 500 people at one time, many of whom are still alive. You can go and ask them. They'll tell you Jesus showed up to them, Right? Well, that's a pretty important thing. What if I was to tell you there are 500 people who saw me catch a six-foot catfish? Some of them have died, but some of them are still alive. Go ask them. They'll tell you. Well, I'm, it's more likely that I'm telling the truth at this point, right? Because you can go and find these 500 people and ask them. 
So Paul is actually giving you every opportunity to prove him wrong about the resurrection. He's giving you every opportunity to prove him wrong. And nobody could prove him wrong. He says then uh, in verse 20 through 27, he gives some theological reasons for this. He says that Christ is the first fruits. He rose from the dead to give us salvation. Um, and continues on there. Anyway, so Paul, Paul builds up this argument. Um, in v- verse 32 through 34, it's really interesting, in- interesting here. He actually, he actually gives some reasons against an argument that he made it up. Verse 32 says, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought beasts at Ephesus? Right? If you threw me, this is one of the ways that people would persecute Christians. They would throw them in front of like lions or bears or some other kind of beast and let, see what happens. What's going to happen with a hungry, hungry animal? Uh, you in a pit with a hungry animal. It's probably not going to be pretty. Right? Paul says, why did I do that? Why would I stand before hungry beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. (coughs) Paul basically says, why would I have done all the stuff I've done if it wasn't true? If he didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why in the world would he face the persecution that he faced? So moving on from there, we, now we have to look for an explanation that actually fits all of the data that we have. Right? We've seen Paul's testimony. We've seen uh, Jesus' explanation that, that this, is exclusive, this is a real important matter. Real quickly... There's several naturalistic explanations. Well, some people would say that the body was stolen. In fact, this is how the, the exact thing that the, uh, <coughs> that the authorities in the, Gospel of Man, in the Gospel of Matthew said to tell people. Tell people that the body was stolen. Tell people that they came in the middle of the night while you were sleeping and they stole the body. Just tell them that and then that way you won't get, you won't get killed for, uh, for your guarding the tomb. We've already seen that the Gospels are fairly reliable in reporting the facts of the case. The likelihood that Jesus' body was stolen is slim, is slim with armed, trained guards watching the tomb. <clears throat> this does not account for, this, this explanation that the body was stolen does not account for the claims that, uh, to, of people seeing Jesus post-death. If the body was stolen, why would people say, oh, he showed up and appeared to me? He showed up and appeared to 500 people at once. And then why would Paul be converted? If they actually just stole the body, why would Paul convert? Why would James convert? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't account for all the data. Another explanation is that they visited the wrong tomb. They just went to the wrong tomb. That's what happened. That assumes a lot of stupidity. In fact, in Matthew, it says that Mary, the, that Mary Magdalene uh, was, was right there watching them put Jesus in the tomb. I think she knew where she was going. Right? They would have to assume a lot of stupidity. And again, it does not account for the claims that Jesus appeared after his death. Some would say that Jesus did not actually die, that he fainted or, or something like that. Um, this could explain the post-death appearances. That uh, Okay, so maybe he fainted and then, and then came out of the grave and was like, Hey guys, right? I'm, I'm alive now. But in the same time, think about this. If you had, somebody was beaten within an inch of their life, Bones exposed, organs exposed, that kind of nonsense. Be severely dehydrated after several days of not having any food or water. And then coming out, would you say, he rose from the dead? No? You'd say, what happened to you? Let's get you to the hospital now, (laughs) right? You would assume he never died. We need to get him to the hospital. He's still alive. But again, it it doesn't explain that people say that he rose from the dead. Uh, and again, there's, there's no reason to believe that he did not die on the cross. The historical data shows that he died on the cross. So the fact that he did not actually die is a far-fetched claim. The chances of surviving, uh, surviving crucifixions, we said, are slim to none. What about this? Some people say it was a spiritual resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was not a physical resurrection. It was a spiritual resurrection. This does not account for the resurrection appearances. In the Gospels, Thomas touches the wounds of Jesus. If it's a spiritual resurrection, what wounds would there be to touch? You can't touch a ghost, right? It doesn't work like that. Or if it's just Jesus rose from the dead in our hearts. 
right? Why would people say, he showed up to me. I saw him with my own two eyes. You wouldn't say that if you knew for a fact that the resurrection was just a spiritual resurrection or maybe some kind of existential resurrection. He rose from the dead in my heart, right? Um, that wouldn't make any sense. They're, they're, the data, it doesn't follow, it doesn't match the data that we have. Paul also insists in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's a physical resurrection. That again, if it wasn't, we're the worst to be pitied. I have a friend, a, a Jewish friend, that she's passed away since. Um, but she's, she always told me that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He was eaten by wolves. Okay? Uh, again, the facts, it does, simply does not fit the facts. There are armed guards in a sealed tomb. How are wolves going to get in there? Not possible. Right? It does not account for the facts. Also, same as we also seen. It doesn't account for the post-resurrection appearances. And finally, this is actually the most... The best argument that I've seen against the resurrection is this uh, is argument from hallucination. Now, let's be fair here. We're going to look at this from a historical standpoint. If this is true that it was a hallucination, this could actually account for most of the facts. It would affirm that Jesus died. It would affirm that people claimed to see him and could even explain that Paul and James believed they saw him. It would also explain why the disciples would go to their deaths. Basically, the position would argue that the resurrection was a huge misunderstanding of hallucinations. That they saw these hallucinations and they misunderstood what was going on. That they thought Jesus, they thought Jesus actually rose from the dead. Two problems, though. What about the empty tomb? Two-thirds of scholars agree that there's an empty tomb. What about the empty tomb? The hallucination argument doesn't describe... Doesn't it doesn't say the, that there's an empty tomb or doesn't account for those facts. And lastly, the second thing that this that just doesn't match up with, Paul makes the statement that 500 people saw him at once, that 12 disciples all saw him at once, that many disciples saw him at once in 1 Corinthians 15. In, in, in psychological research, there is no evidence, zero evidence of mass hallucinations. No evidence of two people seeing the exact same hallucination, let alone 500 people at once. Now imagine me and Todd were walking down the street, and I say, did you just see that? And he goes, you're nuts, Justin. Right? Or if I said, hey, did you see that squirrel run across the road? Maybe I saw something, and he says, no, there was no squirrel, Justin. I would say, okay, I was wrong. I was hallucinating, or whatever. Right? But if I said, hey, did you see that squirrel? And Todd said, yeah, I saw the squirrel. Guess what probably is true? There was a squirrel, right? The, the chances that Todd and I both hallucinated the same thing at the same time is improbable. There is no evidence of that occurring anywhere in psychological data. So then, the best explanation that accounts for all the facts that need to be proved is that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the only explanation that gives account to all of the facts that Jesus rose from the dead, and that he is the Son of God. Without legitimate proof that Jesus did not rise from the dead, like finding his bones, the best explanation for all the evidence is that Jesus rose from the dead. So, the question we have today, is the resurrection faith or fact? Is it faith or fact? No, I'm going to be fair here. I set the question up as if it's got to be one or the other. Truth is, it's both, Right? We can be pretty certain that the resurrection is a historical event. But at the end of the day, we have to trust Jesus as our Savior. That's faith. At the end of the day, we have to make a decision. Are we going to believe it or not? You can be faced with the facts, as we already saw. You can be faced with the facts of the case and say, I don't believe it. Right? You, can, you have the right to be skeptical if you want to. But the facts of the case, the best explanation for the facts that we have is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that is true, you need to put your faith in him. So two areas of invitation today as we move into the invitation. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've not given your life to Jesus. You've not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death and bringing life. You've not believed and trusted in him. I've presented the case. This is the best we can offer as far as a case would go. And again, 
The book I usually use for most of my research is a 600-page book. There's a whole lot more to the story, right? I just couldn't fit it all in a, in a short sermon. So there's information out there. Guys, there's proof standing in front of you. Will you believe or will you not believe? Believing or not believing, as we saw in John, has eternal consequences. Eternal life if you believe. Eternal judgment if you don't believe. So will you believe? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, I urge you, use this, use this uh, invitation as an opportunity either in your seat, down here at the front, you can come talk to me, whatever you, however you want to take care of this. You can know for sure that you have life with Jesus, that you have, your, that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you, have, uh, that you will have eternal life rather than eternal judgment. You have that opportunity. What will you do? Secondly, I want to encourage Christians here today. We don't live on mere faith, as if it's something that's unprovable. Our belief in Jesus is not mere fantasy. It is not just some kind of out there like, oh, I just believe it. We have real proof for our belief. I hope that strengthens your faith today. I hope that also strengthens your resolve to be obedient to the Lord in your faith today. Whatever that may mean, I'm not even going to deal with specifics at that point. If there's ways that you are not being obedient to the Lord. Here are the facts of the case. This is more than just mere faith. This is truth. If you believe that truth, you must live in accordance with that truth. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you must also walk with me. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word. Lord, I know this is a very different sermon. A little less expository, a little more historical. God, I thank you that you've given us the opportunity to use our minds, to use our brains to think through this. Lord, even though this, 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 this wasn't necessarily uh, going verse by verse through a passage of scripture, Lord, this is proving and, 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 and building a case to show that your word is truth. God, I pray for the believers in this room today. I pray that they would be strengthened. God, if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, I pray that they would come today and they would put their faith in you, that they would repent of their sins and trust in you. Lord, I pray that throughout this day as we celebrate Easter, that we may glory in your resurrection as we spend time with our families, that we may not forget that you have raised from the dead and that it is because of that that we have any real meaningful life. In your name, amen.